Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Film Fandango, the film podcast. My name is David Reed, and this man here is Mr. Marek Larwood. Hello, Marek. Hello, David. How are you doing? Well, I went on holiday last week. Right. To Norfolk Broads, and I was on a boat for five days, and I still feel a bit of my balance is still impaired. You're like Kevin Costner at the end of Waterworld, where he finds dry land, spoilers, and it doesn't move right, right? You still get your sea legs on. Yes, and I am also like Kevin Costner in the fact that I don't really have much of a personality. But you do have gills behind your ears, and that seems to make up for it. Yes, but I'm very bland. Webbed feet. I have, and I've maintained my career by, by being consistently bland. Hey, it's a choice. It's very hard to uh, get people's attention being bland, but it's very hard to not offend them once you have a career already. So maybe if you're very interesting at the beginning and then quickly turn to bland so you don't scare them off. Yeah, stay bland. That's the way you do it. And it's just you're the safe bet. Yeah. Don't do anything unusual. Uh, I, I, that said, I am joining in your uh, Kevin Costner piss-taking, but I, I have quite enjoyed him in some films. Yeah, I've got a real soft spot for uh, Robert and Prince of Thieves, for instance. But that is because it's a good film. Correct. Without Kevin Costner. I do have a soft spot. Not as soft, sort of slightly turgid spot for uh, Waterworld as well. Just because everyone shat on it so much and I think it's quite fun. And Bull Durham is quite a good film yeah. as well. Yeah. Dances with Wolves is I've only band. seen that literally once when I was about 16, so I should really revisit it. Is it as good as everyone said? Who can say? You can. I haven't seen it in a while. No, I can't say. We'd have to watch it together. Um, hello. Holding hands. If you want to hold hands for the duration of Bull Durham, then sure, let's do it. We've uh, just come from doing your podcast in the studio. We have. Uh, Marek Larwood is in uh, my podcast, my other podcast, I should say, Inside the Comedian, uh, where we got down hard to some hard truths, I, thought, I think. Well, at some point you said that that's not going on, I was particularly offensive. <laughs> That's definitely not going in. That's correct. And it won't. That I mean, will that never be heard. That one really offensive. The things you said will never be heard by another human being. Um, we're here to talk about films, both current releases and old classics. But before we do, we should mention that we are sponsored by Her Film Project, who are an organisation that help promote diversity in film. So if you would like to learn more about what they do, go to herfilmproject.com and follow Her Film Project on Twitter. 
do you need to say at anyone? Do I need to say at her film project? Now, this is stopped, a thing that's people changed. Stopped saying I at. noticed other people had stopped. It's like saying www dot before a web address. You just don't need to anymore, I don't think. People know there's always an at before a Twitter handle. But it's ingrained in my psyche now. Right. And it will be a signifier to millennials that you are old and they will shun you. Well, that was, that was the thing when Hotmail was down uh, a couple of weeks ago mm. for the day and I still use Hotmail. And there were all these things like, oh, who still uses Hotmail? Hang on. I mean, everyone used it literally seven yeah. or eight years ago. And then we moved on because we were so hip and young. It's, I really hate millennials. <laughs> I mean, if you're listening to this and you are a millennial, I hate you. Well, I'm technically a millennial, Marek, so yeah. When were you born? 82. Oh, millennials is 1980, isn't it? Or 91, isn't it? I think so. Well, I'm the generation who had a mobile phone at school. I think I'm the first generation to do that. Oh, yeah, I didn't have that. Ah. Uh, But there we go. You hate me. I mean, and that is very clear. That's very clear. But it's good of you to keep most of your scorn off the podcast. Imagine if we're feeling it cross now. I wonder what it'd be like in 2049. Now, there's a segue, because I know some things that happened in 2049. How come? I went to the cinema to see Blade Runner 2049. I went to the cinema to see Blade Runner 2049. Well, I think we both knew it was a film we both had to see. I mean, we're big fans (laughs) of the original, right? Yes. Um, It's uh, Blade Runner is... When is Blade Runner set? Do we... Can we remember? 2019 it's quite close to now yeah it is I think it's past I think the Blade Runner it's like 2012 or something anyway we don't know but this is the uh, sequel to Blade Runner 2019 2019 Um, this is the sequel to Blade Runner not directed by Ridley Scott but actually handed over to Denis Villeneuve who is a French Canadian film director responsible for Prisoners Arrival Sicario Films we've talked, enemy, thing, uh, films we've talked about before, um, and it carries on. Uh, what thirty years is what we just said after the events of Blade Runner, and Harrison Ford reprises his role as Rick Deckard. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, first things first. Fan of the original? Yes, I remember. I watched it when I think I said it before. I was about fourteen, fifteen, and didn't like it at all. And then it's quite slow for a young teenager. And then I watched I it in my twenties, and I watched it again a couple of years ago, and I thought it was absolutely magnificent. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, if you see my favourite cut is the the final cut. I think it's called, which is I get mixed up about what cuts what. Basically, all the cuts are pretty much the same, apart from the original uh, cinema edit, which has Harrison Ford's. Lazy voiceover over some bits because they don't trust the audience knows what's going on and it kills it. It makes it really charmless and it also doesn't have the dream sequence in it that Ridley Scott cut into it in order to make it uh, in a very elegant and subtle way imply that Deckard might be a replicant himself. Sorry, buddy sniffing around my snacks. Good boy, buddy. Buddy the dog, buddy the podcast dog. Come here, mate. Come here. Um, so... This, me, me or Buddy? Uh, not you. You stay where you are. Okay. Um, so, this film starts with Ryan Gosling playing uh, the eponymous Blade Runner. Uh, and he knows from the off he is a replicant. That's how they've changed it. They've Terminator 2'd it, right? Mm-hmm. So they flipped it on its head. Um, what did you make of it all? Let's start. Well, Let's before we start, I went to watch the, my, the Everyman in... Uh, which used to be the Odeon in Muswell Hill. Yeah. And I don't know if it was their cinema 
and they used to be the, the screen one used to be upstairs now you're downstairs right it was so loud that I could feel it, it that we my girlfriend and I both put earplugs in because and you wow. could still hear it it was literally ear that I've never been in the cinema where it was that you know you can feel your eardrums yeah. actually hurting we sat right in the middle and I thought is this they must have fucked this up. Yes, that's that must be the staff. And it was just apps really p- painful. And thank God we had earplugs. Yeah, because uh, it was just well, not... also because it's one of the longest fucking films of recent yeah. years. It's two hours and forty five minutes. Um, well, well, it, it, so did that affect your experience? Do you no, because I put earplugs in, and you could hear at a normal level yeah. afterwards. Yeah, um, I thought the score and soundtrack was incredible. Agreed. I thought cinematography by Roger. Deakins, the yes. famous was uh, sublime. I love Ryan Gosling. I, I mean, it's all. I thought Ryan Gosling had a very tricky job to do in this one, um, because he is playing a robotic character, and it is supposed to be um, in the same way that we've seen a lot of times with things about uh, robots. You know, he replicants aren't robots per se, but they are supposed to be manufactured people, and so. The idea, the these films always explore what is humanity, and it, it's got that theme in the same way that um, the Iron Giant does, in the same way Pinocchio does, in a lot of ways. So he is being handed a robotic performance, which actually I found makes it hard to give a shit about him because he played it very well for what he was being asked to do. But it, it, I found it a bit difficult to care about his struggle. I I really liked what I, I mean the original you, it was so groundbreaking so ahead of its time and it did scenes like the first scene the interview scene at the start yes you watch that you don't know what's going on yes you don't you think what is it feels so weird and so alien yet it sticks in your mind the scene when he's Harrison Ford is shooting down the first Blade Runner the tattooed woman yes it, the chase scene that, that the, whole scene yeah, yeah, is incredible him eating noodles in the yeah, bar, yeah. wet bar is a, 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 a seminal moment you know even the scene where Harrison Ford is pretending to be a nerdy uh, reporter um, in order to uh, get in with the, the snake woman yeah is sort of it's weirdly hypnotic because you've never seen Harrison Ford play a character before. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you're right in terms of iconic scenes. The office um, of the Tyrell Corporation, with it, you know, everything is sort of gold and the shadow of the shutter. It's, the cinematography. When you, when you first see when you first see that, there's a brilliant documentary on how Ridley Scott did it all and how he's sort of intercut with sort of uh, yeah. models and end film and how he made got that look of it. Um, I, I, it's whether the, a lot of it was done and the, the original was so great that they and the Rook Howard scenes I think one of oh, my favourite moments in film they already had those moments in place they, they already had the style of the film in place of this film yes you already had that style I thought if you if you like Blade Runner you will love Blade Runner too because the, the, I think the feel of it's the same the tone's the same I agree I, I, but I, I, do, I just don't know there's, there's, whether there, there is are those it may not, might take time for me to settle. I don't know whether it has those scenes. I hear banging on about this directly. The scenes you think these are, are absolutely brilliant moments that I will, I will always remember this scene because it feels like something totally new. I agree. I I got that feeling in the. I think possibly the opening shots where um, we get the sort of the helicopter shots over. Uh, 
fields in California where really they're good. all covered in plastic, and it was like they, I was like, "Wow, this is this is incredible." Um, and in fact, that entire opening scene with uh, Dave Batista, who I I really rate as an actor, he's he's a guy who's come from wrestling. Oh, really? And, and he's in Guardians of the Galaxy, and he played a mute character in Spectre. But no, I think he's just really got something where you put a camera on him, and there is there is stuff going on behind the eyes, and it's not it's he's managed to make it not look like a performance. I think he's I think he's genuinely watchable. Um, but anyway, that in, apparently that entire opening sequence on a farm, as I, as I say, was in originally intended as the opening scene of Blade Runner, the original, and they cut it to start Deckard in, Deckard instead in the noodle bar. Okay. And so they 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 shot it for this instead. But anyway, um, Ryan Gosling basically is sent to track down replicants, even though he is one himself, and to retire them, which is a euphemistic way of saying murder them. And he ends up uncovering some conspiracy that uh, that I will not spoil. But uh, that feels a bit children of men he actually, you know. Yes. Um, this film, I... It, I enjoyed it. I thought it was far too long. It is nearly an hour longer than the original Blade Runner. And although I appreciated everything that was happening and I followed it, it didn't move me. And I think I, you know, I think that is always the best test. I think actually, it, I wanted to. Yeah, it yeah. wanted to move me and it didn't. And I think it felt very engineered rather than felt. So it, but that is a problem of modern cinema. I think the blockbusters—they feel like every single piece has been discussed by committee, and uh, all of the ragged edges have been cut off until you've just got this very precise, correct storytelling that ends up being a bit robotic itself. So, in a story that is supposed to be about finding the kernel of what it means to have a soul, what is what what separates humans from machines? Mm. Ironically. Their exploration of it is quite robotic itself. Yeah, I mean, I because I I, feel I quite like that. There's also a love story. Ryan Gosling has a sort of um, sort of hologram, sort of generated. Yeah, he's in love with the the paperclip from Microsoft Word, basically. I really like that. Did you? I, I liked it as an I idea. Thought, I thought it was really brave to because in, in the original Blade Runner I love the bit when they've got that photograph yes and they go inside right? zoom and enhance it's incredible that, the first time you see that, that you think that's incredible the legacy of the uh, zoom enhance mm. uh, across all of TV and cinema is immense isn't it it can't be overstated but when you first watch Blade Runner you think well, you can go inside this photo and yeah. look in and I just found that absolutely incredible and a really risky thing to do I really like the fact they went do you know what let's give Ryan Gosling this who is a robot himself is robot yes and even more um, what's the word uh, sort of computerised form yeah. abstracted he, form he, of he life in love with and I like the fact they couldn't touch and it was just uh, that was did. that was very that was very interesting and uh, clever and a new idea I totally agree and, and I, I enjoyed and that's why that. that I was pleased to see because Blade Runner was a film of new ideas yes and that this had incorporated some new ideas. I still don't feel they really knew what we were supposed to feel about it by the end, though. Like, again, it, it was a story that intrigued me but didn't move me, that uh, that love story. Um, I like the Peter and the Wolf truck when she turned on. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
No, there's lots to love, but it's for me there's something lacking in its soul, and I think there's a great irony to that. But yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I wasn't disappointed, but I wasn't fully fulfilled. fulfilled. Because it's got, I mean, that's one. I think Blade Runner is in my top ten films of all time. So it's got a lot to try and um, live up to. Yeah, and also, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, although t- t- to live up to it would be incredible, but it didn't fail. And I didn't no. feel as though oh, you've sullied the franchise. Oh, if if we if we're measuring these alongside uh, all of Harrison Ford. Uh, is now 30 years older films yeah this is the best one compared to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and Force Awakens I think it's the most satisfying return to his character it's one of the best uh, sequels in the last 10 years I would say that but yes but yes there is still something missing for me you know what I have not enjoyed Jared Leto in anything I agree with you I I did not he plays the sort of head of Terrell company uh, he's, he's the Ter- Terrell equivalent. Terrell has been gone bankrupt, and the new company, headed by Jared Leto, who is called Wallace, it's the Wallace Corporation, has bought up all of Tyrell's assets. So I could tell he was good, and the way he was speaking, he was almost speaking like a half robotic, sort of measured uh, 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 blind man. Right. But I, I. But I just thought there was nothing to it. It was. It felt like a GCSE drama exam performance to me. He always feels a bit like. That yeah, he he does not in any way excite me, move me, interest me, or entertain me. Like he, all of his scenes could have been cut, and it would have been a better film because it would have been shorter. I I agree with you. That, that was the, he was the. Worst you know who was originally film. intended for that role? Uh, Mike McShane. <laughs> no, it was originally David Bowie. And he oh, died really? before they could shoot it. Oh no! It would have been interesting, though, wouldn't it, to have Bowie versus uh, Harrison Ford in the sort of interrogation? He kind of put the gun down, Deckard. <laughs> That's, That's the worst. You must excuse my many robotic eyes. That's um, good. That's better. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. No, I. You know he. He was he was terrible as the Joker, albeit in a film that was not supporting him by giving the Joker anything of note to do. He was boring in this. I just I'm he's gonna have to wow me in something. In he he got all the plaudits for Dallas Buyers Club, and my God, Matthew McConaughey is dragging that. You know, is the best thing in that film. Mm. Jared Leto is not that interesting. He's just put some makeup on, and everyone applauds like he's broken boundaries or something. It's that sort of thing that when you when you go to an actor who really tries too hard, he seems like a real. I bet he's a real knob in real life. You know what? I found all of his. I found all of his performances robotic, and that again, I come back to it. But I think it's what is missing from this um, this film is Harrison Ford. He's got has always had such a human performance and everyone in this is a robot when it's an, it's it's supposed to be about escaping the robotic nature of life you know and looking at it the other way in the original it's not only a sort of sci-fi version of film noir where uh, Deckard has to track down these fugitives basically in in a version of uh, sort of uh, prohibition era chicago or whatever it's it's a sort of allegory you've also got simultaneously the roy batty storyline of a a a psychopath who only wants the opportunity to live 
and if he can't, he's going to destroy his creator um, out of vengeance. And his storyline is what I think elevates Blade Runner to be something even far more interesting because he is the most alive character in Blade Runner. Deckard is just living this sort of sloggy, mundane existence that he doesn't really know why he's doing anything or if he even wants to be killing replicants. He just does it because it's his job. And he's almost more robotic than Roy Batty, who is desperately wanting to be alive. And they're telling that story better than they do in the modern one, where there is no character like that. Everyone is basically bland and a bit robotic. Well, I think there's... Uh, I, I, just, there's I do think the original's got a simpler story and a purer story. Yes. And it's more clear-cut. This one does that thing where, where you've got a sequel, you have to sort of tie up things and it gets a bit too complicated and maybe there's a bit too much going on. Well, it's, it, there's, a, there's too much complicated in terms of plot strands, but there's less depth. Yes, um, but uh, it's sudden, certainly beautifully shot, and the, I mean, the it's score really, it's is really good. You definitely go to see it. I'll give it seven or eight Marics. I think I'd give it six. Okay. Um, or maybe maybe seven. I mean, I'm being unfair. If I if I put it alongside other things, I've given seven. It's probably worth well worthy of seven, you know. But I was just slightly disappointed by just like I oh, there's. You, you sort of don't get the point of it. You're not feeling any of the story you're telling. You're just telling me the beats of it. You, you go to a nice restaurant, you order some of the menu looks delicious, and it turns up and the plate every looks delicious. You know it's supposed to be delicious, but it just tastes a bit normal. It just tastes like chicken. Everything tastes like chicken. I think it's time for this. Here's a letter from Stephen Device about Mother. Sorry, about Mother! <laughs> uh, he says, Dear David and Marek, I wasn't surprised to hear on your recent episode that Marek hated Mother! This was the most divisive cinema experience I've had in years. A few people walked out and didn't just do so quietly. About 80% of the way through, an older couple stood up and did so quite noisily, then walked along the entire length of the screen at the very front of the cinema without ducking and complaining loudly that it was just rubbish. At the end, the girl next to me apologised for bringing her husband to it. The group walked out ahead of me were loudly talking about how awful it was. It probably says something about it as a film, or me as a viewer, that I really liked it. But what? Could, but could also totally see where they were coming from. I think a lot of the problem with it is that the way it's being marketed, at least here in Australia, is as a kind of horror film. It's more of a strained allegory that maybe functions as a mystery. The enjoyment gained from it, for me anyway, came from trying to work out what was going on and why. Like a good mystery film, once I felt I had the measure of it, things paid off. There's a bit near the end, just before they walked out actually, that was greeted with shock in the cinema, but totally made sense to me because it felt like I had got it at that point. Personally, I think it's the best Aronofsky film since The Fountain, but then I also liked Noah, so I might just be an Aronofsky tragic. I also think it's meant not just as an allegory for the way we treat the planet and the entire Bible played out in nightmare fashion, but as a way of Aronofsky making sense of his relationship with Rachel Weisz and imagining how horrible it must be to be married to him. 
which makes it all the weirder that as a result of filming this, he and Jennifer Lawrence are now apparently in a relationship themselves. Keep watching the film, Stephen Device. Um, yeah, I, it continues to be divisive. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, mother, you, you did not enjoy it at yeah, all. Yeah, that was shit. Right. Um, do you think there is possibly more to it approaching it as a sort of mystery of what it's really about rather than as a literal story no because I just think it's the metaphor is so clunky anyway is it is it, it obvious is. from the start no it's, it's not obvious it, it changes tone in the film but it's just not there's nothing enjoyable there must be some sort of point of interest in it and it's so frustrating and it is um, it's the equivalent of a nightmare a bad dream Dan Arsky's basically told everyone a bad dream he's had but he's done it at the cost of 50 million pounds Hey, he told everyone his anxiety dream and now he's going out with Jennifer Lawrence. Are yeah. you sure you're not just jealous? Because hey. you tell people your nonsense thoughts all the time. What do you mean? Well, that's what mostly what this podcast is these days. What, what do you mean nonsense? <laughs> Sorry, your, your, your heartfelt, deeply considered musings. So you're saying if uh, Jennifer Lawrence isn't this podcast... Maybe, the, yeah, the tables could be turned. I'd be sat here with Darren Aronofsky... Uh, and he'd be talking about cats' bums, and you'd be off with Jennifer Lawrence I'm in LA. Talk about cats' bums in a while. No, you should talk about them again. Um, here we go. Here's from Caleb. A subject I don't understand. Me neither. Me neither, <laughs> Caleb. Here we go. Hello, Fandongaliers. That's quite nice. I like the Fandongaliers. Mm. Can you help me understand the betting system of films? I assume it's a highly, sorry, a hugely protracted way of writing, financing and casting. So, at what point do they screen the film and think, nailed it, when clearly they've made a dog shit movie? Do they re-edit, reshoot and reassess? For example, at what point did they watch Suicide Squad and think it was worthy? Do they have screenings to gauge audience response or, as I suspect in this case, are too financially committed that they have to release it despite it being obviously awful? Is it a case of any press is good press? I just do not understand how so much bullcrap gets released. Are the audiences so stupid that any big budget movie will make money? Are the days of Waterworld and The Postman gone? Well, after shite films were ignored because they're out to shite. How do films like Suicide Squad, King Arthur, Passengers get released? Is is no one saying, hang on, Hollywood, these b- bullshit, and soon we're going to lose our honest completely if we don't make a decent film, or does no one give a shit? It's a good question. It's a good question. Oh, sorry, dogs, dogs next door. Stop. The dogs next door are being complete dicks as yeah. usual. Um, yeah, yeah, shut up, dog. It's a good question. It's a good question and passionately put. I, I think uh, these things, these films cost millions, and they will often, in the case of a big blockbuster, put the same amount of money as the budget, if not double the amount of money as the budget, into the press and publicity. So by the time you have spent, you know, whatever it is the budget of a big film these days, you know, let's let's say $400 million, you are going to release your film, even if you're a bit embarrassed by it. And part of the reason films still work, even if they're dog shit, is people pay before they've seen it. And that is also the reason so much... Attention in terms of whether a film is a success or not is paid to the opening weekend. The opening weekend is before word of mouth can even start going. It's people who've bought a ticket based on the hype, not based on the film. 
And so Suicide Squad is one of the worst pieces of cinema ever made. It's it's incoherent, unentertaining tripe. It is, every single choice they've made is the wrong one, um, apart from possibly the casting of Margot Robbie. Everything else is rubbish. Um, and that's why she's the only one who's actually going to carry on in that character and get more mileage out of it, probably. Um, but... It is. It is exactly. It's exactly that. Once you've spent that much money, you have to release it and try and recoup some of it back if you're going to keep your jobs. I, I, it's as simple as that, isn't it? I mean, there's plenty they can do in terms of minimising damage done to it by the press, because with the big studios, who you know, they are the ones who grant the press access to their stars, to their directors, to their writers. They can withhold access for future projects if the press disobey them, so they can. Uh, they can put an um, an embargo on the film, which means the press aren't allowed to talk about it until a specific date. And this used to happen when uh, Film Fandango went along to the press junkets and stuff uh, back in the Absolute Radio days. Uh, we would go and watch a film, and then we were told it was embargoed until a certain date, and we go, ah, shit, well, we can't talk about it then. And the reason is usually because the film isn't very good. So they want to get to the opening weekend without the pre- the press killing their opening weekend sales. Well, you so here for example, uh, the budget estimated budget of Suicide Squad was one hundred and seventy five million. Right. So opening weekend, yeah, it's August uh, in the US, it took one hundred and thirty three million. So that's a failure. But worldwide, it says the gross US was four hundred twenty. Point five million. So right. and it, oh, it will have made it back worldwide. It made seven hundred and forty-five million. So it made six hundred, well, five hundred and fifty million. Right. I think the reason they're so excited about opening weekends is films tend to peak and then slowly tail off, and so they can sort of predict how much money it's going to make globally based upon that, which is why they get so excited. But yeah, they anyone who's on a percentage share of profits won't see a penny not until the budget is paid back but until the publicity budget is paid back as well and so if the studio has spunked a shitload of money on this film most people won't get paid if it yeah. doesn't do well you know um no it's it's all big business and incredibly complex stuff and normally in terms of reshoots the only experience i've got i did a film i got cut out of that was and they had seven days for Basically, I was in, in the in between as two. Uh, they did. They shot an alternative ending. So seven. They had seven days to reshoot it. Right. And I was so in the original went, ending hadn't tested well, presumably. Well, I don't know. They said that here's another, another version. Right. But they had seven days worth in the budget for reshoots. That's a low budget film. Yeah. So they'll have re- they'll have reshoot on, on every film. They'll have budget for, because they can't release it as an incoherent film but they also don't want to be uh, throwing good money after bad if they think the film's going to be a stinker no matter what and I so. think for the big films they do they do test them I went along to a screening of a, a an early cut of a film and they had a, literally had a scene in like Prisoners um, it was The View and and the film was awful but I can't you have to sign things and you can't talk about it right it didn't have the music on it and some of the shots weren't graded properly but they wanted to test what everyone thought and I left early and I said I'd leave because I didn't want to go to the loop but it was so awful I left right um, and they were literally really trying to push always push me back in the cinema and stay to the end it was a really uncomfortable experience where they give away free tickets for this screening and all they want is to get your opinions they can reach you yeah. know because the cost of it is quite quite big obviously. absolutely yeah 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 
No, it is interesting though. I mean, but of course, you know, if you've spent twenty million dollars, you put it in a cinema no matter what. Well, I mean, this is unprecedented. But through the shortage of letters, uh, we've got an. I think is it an email from the same bloke from Stephen Device? No, from Caleb again. Oh, okay. No, it's just from Callum. It's fine. I thought it's the same one. Who is written about Blade Runner? Oh, that's good. Timely. Caleb and Callum. I mean, there's very similar names. This is from Callum. He says, Dear David Marrick, Buddy, and other noises, I recently rewatched the second half of Blade Runner when it came on one of those Sky movie channels. I last watched it about ten years ago when I was still in college. I remember thinking at the time that it was a bit slow and boring. I thought that Rutger Hauer did an alright bit of talking at the end, but he'd lost me in previous scenes where he was howling like a wolf in his little blue shorts. <laughs> Obviously, this film is widely regarded as a sci-fi masterpiece, 140 in the IMDb game, and I didn't want people thinking I was a divvy, so I lied to everyone and said I liked it. I really enjoyed re-watching it. I loved the Vangelis score, the visuals didn't feel dated, and Scott's ultra-neon depiction of LA is horrible. I like seeing Harrison Ford playing basically a pretty lifeless 40s noir detective. I only watched half of it, though, so I don't know what all that shit about horses was about. The film isn't slow or boring, and it's loads better than most of today's sci-fi dross. Also, Rodger Hauer is brilliant, especially that bit where he howls like a wolf in his little blue shorts. It's weird revisiting a film and having your opin- opinion completely changed. I've just seen a poster on the side of a bus for that new one with Ryan Gosling. That film can fuck right off. What films do you think can fuck right off? Watch films, Callum. Um, well, Callum, if you enjoyed it, then as uh, we've said, you should probably check out... Yeah, I think you'll like it. Later on a 2049. Uh, what films can fuck right off? All the, all the superhero films, all the sequels, all the Spider-Man sequels. Uh, the extended universe Lego movies, I think, can fr- probably fuck off. Um, mm. Lego ninjutsu or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah, just too many, too much of the same thing. Too much of the same thing. Um, yeah, but no, by and large, uh, films can exist. You know, be judged on their own merits once they exist. I, I reckon. You know, just keep making films, guys. Right. Well, I have actually been to see. Another film in the cinema this week, Mary. Two cinema films. Two cinema films. I went to the London Film Festival to see a film from um, a writer-director duo. Torval and Dean. Torval and Dean. No, it was not the latest Torval and Dean, although I must go check it out. Um, They previously did a film that I thoroughly enjoyed and I caught on streaming services and had never heard of and just took a complete punt on and it was very good Um, and I talked about it on the show actually it's called Spring and it was a supernatural romance but I thought it was excellently written, directed and the performances that were especially from the uh, leading lady uh, were fantastic and so I thought hey I'll, I'll, I'll go support their new venture because they're, they're proper independent filmmakers you know they're, you won't I'm, you're unlikely to have heard of them this is their third film but they're called um, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead uh, they're Americans and this is their latest film called The Endless okay now this they uh, just they both directed it Justin Benson wrote it um they and they star in it as well. What's it about then? The Endless is about two brothers played by themselves, 
um, who decide to go back to the cult they escaped from as teenagers. No, it doesn't, to that see, doesn't bode well. To see if their memory of how sinister and, uh, you know, and brainwashing it was are correct. Because one of them is younger than the other, and so he actually remembers it quite fondly and only has his brother's word for it being a sinister place. So they go back there to see what's going on. And anyway... Um, it gets more. It gets stranger from there, basically, and it is it is vaguely supernatural and properly weird. And I won't tell you how it builds from there. But they filmed it in seventeen days. Um, as I said, they are both the directors and the uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the the lead cast. It had a budget of one million dollars, so this is a properly low budget film. It looks stunning. Okay. Yeah, and I really, really loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. Not brilliant enough to stick around for their uh, Q and A afterwards. I was very tired. But uh, <laughs> you don't. I want to see the film. I don't want to see people talking about it. I mean, it. they had flown all the way from LA to come and talk to us. They got straight off the plane. They were tired themselves. But I was like, Nah, I'm just going to walk. Did everyone else leave and go? No, no quite I a lot of people. See. Well, the thing is. Um, it's, it was in central London, it was at the Pitch House Central, and the film started at 9.45pm. No, it's quite So late. by the time a two-hour film has gone on, you're ready for bed, because we all know that the uh, the tube's going to shut down, so we're not going to stick around longer. But anyway, um, it starts with them uh, going and finding this weird sort of commune in the desert, you know, and it's got that beautiful thing of just in America, which reminds me of Breaking Bad, actually, that just in the, those desolate desert landscapes where everything is just dust and scrubland, and there's this little sort of community of slightly overly friendly people living in these like huts in the middle of it and it's like what's going on here mm, to me not good I bet yeah well and it starts to get strange really really strange there's this big there's this sort of redneck hick who walks around like he's permanently um, uh, tensing his entire body and he never talks to anyone and then is it a horror or a thriller? Is it violent, or can you tell us what style of film? It it's is? a psychological thriller, I'd say that. But it, it basically turns into a, it turns into a horror, but not in a slasher way. It's it's more supernatural and weird than that. It actually reminded me a lot of Primer. I was going to thought you were going to say Bum Ghost. A Bum Ghost. Nothing reminds me of a Bum Ghost because I've yet to meet one. Well, I'm thinking about that being the supernatural sequel to Bumming Man. A bum ghost, a bum ghost, not the, but no, a bum no, ghost. No, it's called bum ghost. I quite like a bum ghost. It's got no, a rhythm no, to it. It's not called. It's called bum ghost. Right, I'm going to make a bum ghost, and we'll see who wins. It'll be like ants and bugs. Like, oh, no, never <laughs> looking up on those. It'll be in the list. A bum ghost, ghost come before bum, bum ghost. ghost. <laughs> That's right. Oh. Thor will release triple A bum ghost about uh, oh, a bum no. ghost that looks like a batter- battery. But surely triple A should go behind a. You're right, it would. You're absolutely right. It so should. AAA Bum Ghost wouldn't go anywhere. It would have to be uh, 2049 Bum Ghost. So numbers go first. Numbers go first, yeah. What about 1000 Bum Ghosts? That would be before 2049 Bum Ghost. Now, is it decimal? So does 0.1 <laughs> yeah. go before I 1? I think it works the same way Windows Explorer would work, you know, in putting files in order. So 0.001 
percent bum ghost. No, I think that would count the decimal point as uh, a character rather than as uh, the decimal counting. So it wouldn't know that that it was decimal. So 007 bum ghost. 007 bum ghost would be the first one on the list of everyone's bum ghost movies. Well, that's good. What it didn't have that's to got be. that sorted. Yeah, it actually reminds me of Primer. Um, the uh, the film we talked about quite a bit, which was made on no money and is two- Shane Carruth's film. That's yeah. it, um, and involves time travel because it gets a bit Donnie Darko. Uh, this film as well. Massive rabbits. Massive fucking rabbits. <laughs> no, no. It's it's a really creative film that, for a s- smaller budget, as one million dollars is really fun and it won't they will not have the backing for the publicity behind it so I would say as soon as they need people to, to go to go to Q&A's afterwards they need people to go to Q&A's afterwards and really listen to what they have to say uh, no I mean it's called The Endless um, you can also check out their previous films as I say Spring I highly recommend I have not seen um, their second one which I think is called Resolution but um uh, let me just have a look. They need to start putting 007 in front of these. Uh, <laughs> 007 resolution. Yeah, that's right. Um, actually, Spring might have been their second one. So, I mean, that's the thing. If you just, everyone start. Everyone start putting 007. I'm sorry to go off topic here. Right? Everyone will start putting 007 in front of their film. So, yeah. 007 Bum Ghost will eventually be down. So you have to be 007. What? Yeah. A A Bum A Bum Ghost. No, A W seven A one Bum Ghost. A one Bum Ghost. Uh it's not to not to distract you from the A one Bum Ghost chat, but uh Aaron Moorhead is also the cinematographer on it. So they have directed it, produced it, edited it, DOP'd it and acted in it and So he had to press record and then run around the other side and just right. in front of the camera. Right. I know that feeling. Look, but it's an impressive feat, isn't it? That when people yeah. can actually come up with a good film by just doing it all themselves. I wonder what that million pounds went on then. It's true, just took half a million each. Yeah. Um, well, how many devils did you give it? I think I'd give it... Um, I think I'd give it eight. That's I, good. I properly enjoyed it. I properly enjoyed it, and it's nice to see, you know, a, a different kind of film. Is it a nice length? Yeah. Yeah, it's it felt it felt that way. It felt a, a decent length, actually. Let me just look up how long it actually is. The police are coming to kill their dogs next door. Thank God. It's all the all the I've got to say today's episode had, had all the, all the guests, all the characters, all all the regulars are in. <laughs> yeah, in force today. In force. It feels like Camden is getting more mad and uh, more dangerous. When I've been walking to your house recently, there have been a lot more mental people about. Yeah. Yeah, there are. There are. Um, one hour fifty one. So it's it's just oh, okay. it's just over a sort of uh for me, you know, efficient, elegant time, but it's it's under two hours, so that's good. Uh, no, I thoroughly recommend it, the endless, track it down. Well, that's enough for this week, I think. Well, it's not some it's important news. You're bloody right, there is some important news. Some um, sad and important news. Uh, well, both sad and, and joyous. joyous news. Listeners, um, as Marek rightly points out, I have some important news, which is that next week will be my last film Fandango for who knows how long, uh, for the foreseeable future. Now, um, the reason for this is that myself and Danielle Ward, the uh, co-creator of Film Fandango, uh, with myself back in the absolute days, are having a baby. And so 
my R flat where um, where this is going to where our baby will live is no longer going to be a very good location for recording this as it will be chaotic and I don't know how much time I can commit to going to the cinema so for the foreseeable film uh, Fandango is not going to cease Marek is going to carry on and turn it into something slightly different do you uh, can you tell them what plan so the plan is <laughs> Unfortunately, it's going to just be me talking nonsense, but not not only me. I'm going to go to the cinema with a guest each week. That is the plan. And then we are going to talk about the film we've just seen after we straight out of the cinema. Yes. And then I'll ask them some questions about their favourite films and some general cinema questions. So please keep on sending me your letters. That's very important because I don't want to hear my nonsense opinions. <laughs> for 40 minutes so send those letters in and uh, nothing is going to change in terms of all of that you can still get the podcast in the same place if you're a subscriber you will still uh, come in uh, to your devices in the same way and you can still get in touch with us by going to filmfandanga.com and filling out the form and also uh, if everyone has donated thank you very much and um, please keep on donating so I can pay for all the cinema <laughs> Tickets. But Marek starts shouldering that burden all on his own. Um, Yes, so um, sad times, but also, uh, you know, happy times for us. So next week will be the last time uh, for a decent length of time that you will hear myself and Buddy, I'm afraid, as well. And the shit dogs next door. The shit dogs next door are going to come with me, and hopefully the sirens as well will be far less. It's the end of an era. Uh, but the start of a uh, start of a new one. Well, you'll be back though. I'll be back. I'll be back. Um, yeah, but for this week, uh, that's enough. Uh, thank you for listening, and keep, keep watching, watching the, the films. films. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.